So I met my wife just over a decade ago. And what's interesting is that I love my wife dearly. But her and I remember things differently. Like she remembers them incorrectly, and I remember them correctly. Do you believe me? How about, for instance, the first time we ever met? Now let me tell you my version of the story, the true version. I was going to a church, and I was uh, a small group leader. I was a youth leader. And I remember one Sunday morning after the service, we were standing in the foyer of church, and I was standing with a group of guys, and we were just chatting, and, and all of a sudden this angelic figure floated across the foyer. And I remember I, I, I looked at my buddies and I said, oh, I was like, who's that? I've never seen her before. And they said, oh, that's Tyson's sister. Now, Tyson was in my youth group and he was in my small group. So my very first question was, is she older or younger? That's important. Well, it turned out she was older. She had just gotten back from college. And so my natural next question was what? Guys, help me out here. Is she single? Does she have a boyfriend? The answer was yes, but it didn't matter. Because I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't too worried about that. But what's interesting is that we were standing next to one another, and eventually I got up the courage to kind of walk over and introduce myself to her. And that started a, a wonderful relationship, and now we have two children, and she just couldn't be more in love with me. So now if you ask Morgan what happened... She walked across the, the foyer at the church and a very large bearded man was making her feel awkward because he was staring at her. And eventually she felt awkward enough that she had to walk up and introduce herself to me. Now I'll let you choose which one was right. I believe it's probably somewhere in the middle. Like I don't know if I give off a huge creepy vibe, but it doesn't matter and I don't want to know. Please. <laughs> But I remember it, like, looking back on that, and it's so funny because so many stories in our marriage and in our relationship kind of go that way. I'll tell a story, and then after our friends leave, she's like, you know, it didn't really happen exactly like that, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So she always goes over my sermon notes and makes sure that none of my things that I say are lies. But she's not here tonight, so I told that story to begin with. But you see, the interesting thing is, is when I look back on that, I realize that, that my memories... My, my memories are informed by my perceptions. Let me explain it this way. Imagine you were uh, downtown Saskatoon and there was a car accident and it happened right in front of you at an intersection that you were standing at. The police roll in, the fire department roll in, and the police officer, after taking statements, starts to come around and starts to ask people that witnessed the accident, what did you see? Now, you would expect that each person would probably give a slightly different description of what happened. In fact, if every single person that that police officer talked to gave the identical story word for word, you would think that something fishy was going on. You would think that somebody collaborated because that's not how people work. We remember things differently based on our perspective in the moment at the time from our background and our context and, and a whole host of different things. And it's because our perspective informs our memory. It's the way that we look back and we remember things. It's from our perspective. And sometimes it's not that we lie when we tell a story. It's just that our perception is maybe different than somebody else's. And the way that you remember something or the way that you experience something in your life is shaped by your perspective. 
It's shaped by your history. It's shaped by your experience. Whether by choice or by circumstance, no matter how you get into those situations, the way that you remember something, the way that you tell that story later is informed by your perception and a whole host of other things that go into your experience of that time. That is true of Scripture as well. It's true of Scripture as well. And it's especially true of the Gospels. Now, the Gospels, if you don't know, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're right at the beginning of the New Testament, so they're about this far into your Bible. This is the back. This is the front. So they're a little bit further along. Now, in the Gospels, what you have is you have slightly different variations of telling the same story. It's the story of Jesus. It's his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But they're all told from slightly different perspectives. They're not all identical. They weave in different information and different perspectives. They weave in uh, different details into their telling of the Jesus story. And sometimes, and I'm going to be honest, and I remember when I, very, when I first started to study the Bible, there were some discrepancies. And there were differences. And I remember wrestling with that and going, how is this, how is this possible? But the longer that I spend in God's word and the, and the longer that I, I open this up and I get into it, I am reminded that it's actually for good reason that there's differences. There's good reason. These accounts of Jesus are seen through real human eyes and then they're recorded by real human hands. And so there are differences and there are slight things that we don't fully understand at first glance. But the important thing to remember is that the Gospels especially are more than the sum total of just what was seen. If we just look at the Gospels, if we just look at the Bible and all we see is a historical book that needs to tell us exactly what happened the exact way in our 21st century mindset, we miss out on a lot of stuff that goes on in here. These stories are informed by the lives of the people that experience them. They're informed by geography and history and socioeconomic status. They're informed by culture. They're informed by religion. They're informed by oppressors and foreign armies and occupation. They're informed by a whole host of things. A narrative way to tell stories that's very different than the way that you and I tell stories. And the base reality of it all is that they experienced a very, very different life than we do today. So when we read things in scripture and when we're confused and maybe even a bit skeptical, we need to remind ourselves that there is a huge gap between us and when scripture was written. And it's not just time. It's not just that 2,000 years passed or, or 4,000 years, depending on where you pick in the Bible. It's that so much has changed. It's almost impossible for us to truly understand what the people who wrote these scriptures went through and how they saw their world. But I'm so thankful that there is no distance between us and God. And scripture tells us that God is able to give us the ability to interpret and to understand and to teach and to live out this word. Because scripture reveals the wonderful truth of who God is and why he chose to reveal himself to us in the way that he did. It's a complex book. It doesn't always follow our own logic. It doesn't always follow the way that we would communicate something or the way that we would understand it. But their different approaches to telling the Jesus story help us understand it from different perspectives so that we can draw out application and implication for our lives today. 
So in our time together, I want to look, I want to start by looking at a story that's found in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, whether it's physical or whether it's electronic, open right now to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And it's the story of when Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. Now, it's a story that's found in all of the Gospels. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's found in John. Which, right at face value, tells us something. It tells us that at the very core understanding of who Jesus was, there was this rich tradition of Jesus feeding multitudes of people. This wasn't something that just came out of nowhere. There's not one very tiny story somewhere that they've extrapolated. This is found in many different places because it was part of who Jesus was. He fed people. So let's... um, Oh, sorry. So you might be wondering why we're going to focus on John then. And why not Matthew or Mark or Luke? Why John? Well, it's because John offers us a very different perspective into who this Jesus character is and why he's doing what he's doing. Especially in this story, I believe that it gives us a deeper comprehension about who Jesus is and why he's worth following and what he can do for us and what that demands from us in response. So let's start in John 6, starting with verse 1, the feeding of the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? There's that poor boy, just by the way. He's just walking by and they're like, you can take his fish and bread. He's like, what? (laughs) No. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This story tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us about his mission. It tells us about his character. It tells us about who he cares about and what he is willing and able to do for those that follow and come to him. And I just want to start by saying... Something that I just find amazing just reading this is that Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and there just happens to be 5,000 people there ready to listen to him speak. 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, I'm thankful that you all love me and you you care about me and I appreciate that, but if we were to jump in the van and drive down to Moose Jaw, how much do you want to bet that there would not be 5,000 men waiting to hear me teach? Probably not likely. So something's going on here. When we read scripture, we need to start to look for these things. Why, why is there 5,000 men plus women and children sitting there? Why is there nearly 10,000 people probably gathered to listen to this guy teach? It's because something was going on. 
Something was happening then. 5,000 people didn't just show up to hear some random guy. I mean, I know they didn't have like TikTok, but they still probably had things to do. But they went out of their way. And that's amazing. But there are some differences between John's gospel and the synoptics. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus is provoked to offer food. The disciples come to him and say, Jesus, these people are hungry. Jesus, this is the end of the day. Like, what are you doing? We don't see that in John's gospel. In John's gospel, Jesus takes the initiative. Also, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that the disciples distribute the bread. But in John's gospel, it's Jesus that distributes the bread. And really, there are a host of differences beyond that, but this isn't really the place to kind of get in and, and, and unpack all of it. But the question still remains, why is John's gospel different? Why is this story different? How, wh- what can we learn from this? Well, I think that it shows us simply another perspective of Jesus. You see, John's gospel was written about 60 years after the life of Jesus. In fact, it was the last gospel written. Uh, It's the most comprehensive, and it tells the story of Jesus from a very different perspective in a very different way. And what's interesting is that when we look at the differences, we tend to read into it as a 21st century mindset. Well, if John is right, that must mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are wrong. Because they can't both be true, can they? But the reality is, is that in ancient culture, when people told stories, they also told a message. It wasn't just for the sake of telling a story. And so here, John is trying to get across some truth about Jesus that he wants the people to know about, specifically in the area of Asia Asia Minor, where John ended up and kind of the the community that followed John and his teachings ended up. But that's not the point. The point is, what does this story teach us? Well, at a very base level, it teaches us that Jesus is practical. Jesus is practical. Jesus sees the people in need and he simply extends grace. There's no question. There's no asking. There's no, uh, there's no kind of lead up to it. Jesus just does it. He sees the people. I don't know if you know this or not, but he didn't have to feed them. Like, you are all here right now listening to me, and we didn't feed you. <laughs> Although you're probably thinking, I wish you would have. <laughs> it may make it easier. But we don't have to feed you, and Jesus didn't have to feed the people. And so this is one of those times where you can strip away all the theological underpinnings. You can pull away all of the societal and the contextualization and the scripture and you can pull back the history and you can just look at the story for what it is. And what happens is Jesus shows up, there's a bunch of people waiting for him to hear him teach and Jesus takes the time and says, you know what, we're gonna feed these people. Jesus is practical. There's no prompting, there's no questioning, there's no admittance of hunger from the people's perspective. They just are there and Jesus says, Let's feed them. The story also teaches us that Jesus gives abundantly. Jesus gives abundantly. But there's something deeper that's going on than just food. That's not the point of this story. The point isn't just that Jesus gives them food, but there's more to it. Jesus provides for their basic human need. Food is a a basic human need. And Jesus shows up and he provides it practically And abundantly. Look at how this passage comes to a close. Jesus feeds the people until they were stuffed. 
It says until they could eat no more, until everyone had had their fill. And just a quick side note that I found interesting was that whenever we hear the story of the bread and the fish, we always think of the fish as the main course, right? And then the bread's on the side because that's how we do it. That's not how it was back then. Back then, the bread was the main thing and the fish was made into kind of a fish relish, which, you know, if any of you are looking for content ideas, fish relish, you could try it. And they would spread it on the bread. I just, I thought that was interesting in my research. But what's going on in this story is that in the book of John, Jesus, or John shows us over and over again how abundantly Jesus gives, how amazing his kingship is, how amazing he is as the Messiah and the, the leader of the people. He's the son of God. He is the I am. And we see in the very beginning of the book of John, we see that Jesus goes to a wedding and he makes wine out of water. But he doesn't just make a little bit of wine. He makes 150 gallons of it. 600 liters and not just the bad stuff he makes the good stuff this is the this is the Jesus that we read about he shows up and 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 he goes you know what okay I I can do it but hold my wine I'll show you (laughs) I'm kidding don't Holly delete that after (laughs) Jesus is able to provide abundantly to those who follow and to worship him And sometimes we wonder what that means. Sometimes we wonder, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know what? Sometimes it means just show up. Just show up. Don't come with a list. Don't don't come with a, you know, I got to do this and I got to do that. And oh, God, since you're listening, you know, can you heal my aunt? And and can you take care of this? And if I could pass this midterm with flying colors, that'd be really great because I need it. Sometimes it's just enough just to come and just to be in the presence of Jesus. And it's just in that simple act of obedience that Jesus provides for our needs in an incredible and an abundant way. Jesus does something so amazing in this passage. Jesus reveals his glory through his grace. This is important, and this is going to matter a little bit later in the sermon, so stay with me. Jesus reveals his glory through his grace. Instead of opening up the heavens and a golden staircase coming down with cherubim and seraphim and trumpets blowing and angels being like, hey, instead of showing the world like that, like I probably would have done, Jesus shows up and he says, here's some bread and fish. He shows up and he does not chase after glory from people. Jesus simply pours out his grace by providing a meal. And that is remarkable and so just as, a, just as a quick side note, I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what is in your path. I don't know what's coming down the pipe in your life right now. But you need to know that when you just show up and you just abide, that just means you, you live in, you, you come close to Jesus and you just say, I- I'm here. He provides practically and he provides abundantly. But I want to take a second and I want to look at the people's reaction to what Jesus does because this is important. Let's look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You know, at first glance, we think that's not really that bad, is it? I mean, they, they see Jesus do something amazing and they go, well, that's the guy we want for our king. That's the guy that we want to follow. That's the guy who we want to be in the throne. 
But John's gospel spends a lot of time exploring this image of Jesus' kingship. Because the people of Israel were hoping for a king. They were looking back at their past and they were thinking about kings like Solomon and David and the great kings that came before. And they were thinking, this Jesus is going to be so much better. He's going to sit on the throne and he's going to rule over everything. And he's going to give us exactly what we want and Israel is going to be amazing again. So yes, Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that they were looking for. And I think that if we're honest, and if I'm honest standing up here on this stage tonight, there are times in my life where I see Jesus do something and I begin to twist it because I want it to serve me and I want more of it. How often do I come to Jesus just to fix my problems? Just to go, you know, I know you can do this. Your book is full of miracles. But then I have moments of clarity. Moments where the Holy Spirit speaks to me and through stories like this in Scripture that remind me that I might not always get the king that I want, but I always get the friend that I need. I want to keep going. Let's look at verse 16. We're going to go into the very next passage of Scripture, the very next thing that follows after this. When evening came, so this is right afterwards. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, this body of water is located right in the Jordan Rift Valley. And in this particular valley, the way that it's situated geographically, the wind is very strong, and storms can blow up rather quickly. And it reminds me of Kootenai Lake a little bit. Now, Kootenai Lake is, is a lake in British Columbia. It's where I grew up fishing and, and spending a lot of my summers and stuff. But it's one of those lakes that the way that it's situated in the mountains, big storms can blow in rather quickly. And if you're in a small boat and you're a long way from the marina, you can get into trouble. Now, I remember one time we were out fishing and we were a long way away from where we normally parked our boat and a storm started to blow in and it was a doozy. <laughs> and waves were crashing and they were huge and our boat was kind of navigating through them and so we started to head back to the marina and it was rocking and doing its thing. And about halfway back, we noticed that we could see something out in the distance. We couldn't quite figure out what it was and so we decided to start to direct our boat that direction because we wanted to see what was going on. And as we got closer, we realized that what was happening was there was a guy that used to be in a canoe that was no longer in the canoe, but beside the canoe, and the canoe was full of water. And he was in the middle of Kootenai Lake, which is a huge, huge lake, by the way. And I remember as we approached in our boat, you could see in his face this incredible amount of relief. In fact, there was nothing in his eyes except for this weird mixture of joy and relief. Joy that we were there and relief that he was not going to die in the water. Now, 
With that image in mind, I want you to close your eyes. Imagine something with me. You're a disciple of Jesus. You've just seen him multiply a simple basket of bread and fish into enough food for well over 5,000 people. Then, right when Jesus is about to get the recognition that he deserves, the recognition that you know that he should be getting because you're following him, he is the king, he bails and he leaves you alone. So what do you do? You go down to the shore, you get in your boat, and you decide to head across the lake for another town. And you get about a third of the way across. You've been paddling now for nearly six kilometers, because we're in Canada, and you're working it across, and the wind picks up, and you're being whipped around in your boat. You personally know people that have died in this body of water by little boats being capsized. And you're pretty sure that this could be the end. But then out of the mists... Walk Jesus, walks Jesus. Now open your eyes. Wouldn't you think in that moment you would be excited to see Jesus? They know it's him. It, the scripture says they saw Jesus coming and they were frightened. What about it caused them to be frightened? Think about that for a second. You see, when I read scripture and I come across stuff like that, I go, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know. Why would they be frightened? If I was in a boat and I was about to die and Jesus Christ himself walked across the waves, I'd be like, oh man, thank God you are here. But that's not what happens. But in Matthew and Mark, because this story doesn't show up in Luke, but in Matthew and Mark, we're told something slightly different. You see, the perspective in Matthew and Mark is from Jesus. The perspective in John is from the disciples. In Matthew and Mark, it says that they thought they saw a ghost. And that's why they were afraid. But that's not what happens in John. In John, it's from Jesus' perspective. And as he's walking across the water, Jesus knows that they know it's him. But why? Well, in Matthew and Mark, the whole purpose of this miracle is to show off how glorious and powerful Jesus is. Because he speaks to the wind and the waves and they become calm. But in John, that doesn't happen. Jesus gets in the boat and immediately they're at the other side. And so something's going on here. And what is it? What is it that's going on? Well, in John... This miracle is there simply to show us the divinity of Jesus. It is there to show us that there is so much else going on. Because remember when Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. There's, th that phrase is packed with a lot of history. If you go back to the second part of Isaiah in the Old Testament, you'll see that God calls himself, I am. That is the exact same phrase that's used here. Jesus says, it is I. That is, I am. And then God says in Isaiah, do not be afraid. So Jesus walking on the water here, he is saying this. This is what John's trying to get us to understand is that Jesus says, I am. You're looking for God? Here I am. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So what is this story all about? This story isn't here to show that Jesus has power over the wind and waves because it doesn't talk about it. This story is about Jesus going to save his friends. 
That's it. That's what it's for. Just like Jesus in the miracle right before this. These two things are connected, by the way. It's not there was days in between. Jesus fed the multitude. He went off because he didn't want to be king. The disciples went, well, I guess we're going across the water. Got swamped. Jesus shows up. Then they're across the water. This goes together. So Jesus just supplied the multitudes with their need for food. And in this story, Jesus provides his friends with their need of safe passage. And when we begin to view these stories together, and that's why it's important to read Scripture kind of in, in chunks sometimes. It's important to get into it and, and read. Like, you know, take the time and read through an entire book or read through a couple of chapters and let it kind of marinate. You know what I'm saying? Let those questions come up. And then you can call me. You can call one of our lead team. You can, you can look at a book. You can go on the Google, if you're careful, and you can find information. <laughs> Something amazing happens when we view these stories together. Because when Jesus withdrew from the crowd that wanted to make him king, he showed us something very important about his character. He showed us that he would offer grace without the promise of glory. You see, Jesus in that story shows us that his grace is given freely. He doesn't do it for glory. He doesn't do it for power. He doesn't do it for any other reason at all. And in that very moment of Jesus not seeking glory but freely giving grace, we actually see his true glory. And it doesn't come from worldly appreciation or recognition. But in the feeding of the multitudes, like I said, Jesus reveals his glory through his grace. And I, I think sometimes, what would it be like if Jesus was here today? If Jesus was the pastor of this group, if, if I was sitting there and he was standing up here talking, he wouldn't need any rich and famous people. He wouldn't need any influencers. He wouldn't need the power of the government. He wouldn't need any type of authority. He wouldn't even need the, the vote of confidence of the majority. Jesus would simply show up and offer grace freely to everybody. And that is amazing. But then, when we read this very next miracle back to back, we see something else very, very cool. Jesus reveals his grace through his glory. Let me unpack this for a second. In Psalm 107, verse 30, we actually see a, a prophecy of Jesus. We see this beginning where it says, they were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. You see, Jesus here is living out what the Old Testament says about him. Jesus here is showing his divinity. He's showing his power. Jesus walks across this stormy sea in the book of John simply to come to be with his disciples, to give them safe passage so that he can continue to do his mission of bringing all people into the full knowledge of God. Jesus walking on water wasn't a miracle for the sake of a miracle. It wasn't a moment of glory for the sake of glory. It was a moment of glory for the sake of grace. Jesus' glory is not revealed in his power. In the story in John, Jesus' glory is not revealed in the fact that he can control nature and that it bows down to his will. In John, his glory is shown through the fact that he will simply walk across water to be with his friends, to provide them safe passage. That's where his glory is seen. That's where his power is best understood in this story. You may ask, why? Why? Well, Jesus' glory is not revealed for power. 
His glory is simply revealed so that every man and every woman and every child of every tribe and tongue in every part of the world would be able to come freely to Jesus and be offered grace and experience his glory for themselves. I'm just so amazed when I read these scriptures because it reveals something inside of me. It reveals something inside of me that that shows me that I can so easily slip into one of two camps. On the one hand, when things are going well, I can very easily convince myself that they're going well because I'm doing something right. Right? I'm, I'm living out my faith just the right way and God's blessing me. You know, I figured this out, right, I'm giving 10% of my income, but I also give a little bit extra, so that, that's why God's taking care of me. And we can begin to spin this tale in our mind of who this Jesus is and what that means for us. And in our selfish, sinful, broken way of seeing the world, we begin to see that the good things in life are blessings from God because of what we've done. But on the other hand, we can fall easily into something that's known as retributive justice. This idea that if something's going wrong in your life, it's because God is cursing you. Because you've done something and God has removed his grace and God has removed his blessing from your life. These are both misguided. And they're both very false. Now it's not that God can't and doesn't bless people who walk in obedience. I actually believe that he does. It's just that that blessing looks very different. And it's not that God doesn't punish those who step away from him and pursue sin and evil. Because he does. The punishment of sin is death. But we're offered life through Jesus. And Jesus shows us in these two miracles especially in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is able to bring his grace and power to rest in every situation and every circumstance that we find ourselves in. That is an amazing truth, my friends. Whether it's the basic human need for food or safety, Jesus will find a way. Jesus will find a way. And the thing that I just come back to over and over again is that we don't always understand We don't always understand why God comes through sometimes and why he doesn't come through other times. But I need to remind you tonight that that perspective is our own. Because when we feel like God hasn't come through, when we feel like God isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing, it is always because we do not understand his ways. And because we are looking through it through a limited perspective. We need to expand that. Because Jesus doesn't hold himself back because we don't understand. or He doesn't hold himself back or stop doing his work because we twist his goodness for our benefit. If that were the case, my friends, he would be gone a long time ago. There's two elements at play in these stories. It's God's grace and God's glory. And it's seen through Jesus. The almighty power of God. The almighty glory of the risen Christ is seen here in what he does for these people and for his friends. I want you to listen to how Paul frames grace in Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. 
through showing up and being in the presence of Jesus. That's what Paul says here. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul just comes out right and he says, you know what? God's grace is free. You get it through faith and because Jesus gives it freely and it's because of his glory that you experience grace, not because of what you do, not because of what I do. But then listen to how John begins in chapter 1, verse 14. He writes, we have seen his glory. We have seen God's glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So friends, let this be a reminder to you tonight. As you go out into the rest of your week and as, as you go out in, into everything that you're going to face, as we close here in just a few minutes with worship, actually worship team, why don't you come up and, and start getting ready. We're going to close in one more song here and, and the song that we're going into is it's come to the altar. And it's this cry of our hearts that says, Jesus, I just want to come into your presence and, and, and I need you. I'm hurting from sin. I'm separated from you. The things that I've been doing just aren't working. So God, I just come into your presence. And when we do that, Jesus comes alongside of us. And he shows us his glory through his gracious love and his care for us. And other times he reveals his grace through his glorious power. It's two sides to the same coin this beautiful image we get of Jesus because Jesus is the king that we need whether we understand it or not one that pours out his grace on us freely but commands the winds and the waves of chaos in our lives to be still so that we can experience a safe passage through this life to be with him forever and so friends I, I don't know what it is that you're facing I don't know what it is that you're going through. Maybe it's a season of joy and excitement and you're just so thrilled for what God's doing in your life and I just want to praise God alongside of you and we want to worship him for that because those are amazing and those are seasons that we get to experience and those are seasons that are so, so much fun. But you may also be in a season of life that's not so rosy and so good. And I just want you to be reminded tonight that when you come and into the presence of Jesus, he provides for you practically and abundantly and he shows you his grace through his glory. And he shows you his glory through the fact that he loves us and he offers salvation for free.